Almost Awakened podcast, a no-nonsense approach to spirituality with your hosts, Brittany Hartley and Bill Reel. Here we dive deep into the wisdom traditions while acknowledging insightful breakthroughs in science, psychology, and human development. Our goal is to explore the good life and the very best of spirituality, no-nonsense required. Check us out at almostawaken.org where you can check out past episodes, make a donation, email us a question or comment, or find out more about the resources we shared. And now, today's podcast episode. All right. Brittany Hartley, how are you? I'm so good, Bill. How are you? Excellent. Excellent. What's uh, new and exciting in uh, in B. Hartley's world? Uh, that is a good question. Um, I've just been doing, you know, I've been trying to expand just kind of my services and wanting to spread good spirituality throughout the world. And part of that is this podcast, which I love. And then part of that is, you know, coaching or online courses. And I'm trying to figure out, you know, how to, um, you know, build a career in this space, which is hard. Nobody's figured that out yet. We don't have the structure for that yet. Mm. And I'm just noticing how much um, people are really wanting to do kind of guided plant therapy experiences. So I've been really learning kind of that world. And I have some mentors who are helping me with that. And it's been really interesting to do that just to, um, you know, it's it's kind of like the the deep work that I love to do, but you're doing it kind of in one day rather than, you know, years and years of therapy, you can do a lot of processing in this one time. And so it wasn't something I was expecting to do, but I'm um, enjoying doing with people because I just really love going to people's deepest places. That's what makes me feel the most human. That's what makes me make connections. And I just, I love any time that I can spend with someone's kind of deepest places. Um, those are good days for me. So I've been doing that more. And I'll tell you, you know, as we've been doing this, uh, this podcast, I was going to just click on something here and, uh, I wanted to look at what our last, cause I've been really proud of the last several episodes we did last week. We did the bite model and I thought that was fantastic. Um, we got a uh, lot of good one, feedback from that episode. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, in recent dangerous ideas, I just shared the dangerous ideas with somebody yesterday, I was fascinated by the conversation that we had um, as we've done um, the the hero's journey. Uh, you did spiritual bypassing. We talked about attachment styles. I just really think we're putting together incredible content. And as you put, pointed out, the, the comments back to each of these episodes, again, while this, uh, this podcast is still sort of new and, um, you know, it's not being listened to by Joe Rogan's full audience yet, but not but yet. <laughs> the episodes are no, no, not yet. But the episodes are getting great comments. People seem to be deeply appreciative of what we're talking about, and uh, I'm just excited to see the things that we put together um, over the next whatever, let's say six months, because yeah. I know we've talked about some things that are in the works. And what uh, I love, yeah, what I love about our podcast is that we're doing the deepest work that you can do as humans. I mean, we're talking about our biases, we're talking about attachment styles, we're talking about spiritual bypassing, all those things that we mentioned. But we're not doing it in a way where we're trying to sell you a certain kind of God or a certain kind of view of the universe or a certain kind of occult practice or or even a certain kind of meditation practice. I mean, we're really trying to strip away 
any kind of, you know, nonsense, any kind of required beliefs. And like, let's just talk about the tool. Like, let's just get to the tool. And that's what I really love about what we're trying to do on this podcast is can we talk and provide access to all of the best tools of spirituality for a beautiful, flourishing life without any of the bullshit that always gets attached to it. And so we have some pretty big guests coming up. We have um, Nick Jenkel, who's really a really huge guest for us. He's a, you know, he has Ted talks. Um, He's the author of spiritual atheists and he's going to come talk to us. So we appreciate those who are listening live and those who add questions and kind of talk to us as we're doing this live and then just appreciate all the support so we can continue to grow this podcast into all of the best spiritual things with None of the bull. Yeah. And I was just going to show folks here. Um, if folks want, they can go to exmoshirts.com backslash collections backslash Mormon discussions. And that's the umbrella nonprofit that hosts the Almost Awakened podcast. But folks can see right there is the Almost Awakened shirt you can order. Uh, and there's also an Almost Awakened coffee mug. If folks want to sip on their morning coffee, Thinking about uh, the things that we do here on the podcast, just a couple of nice little items. Um, but anyway, for folks, uh, exmoshirts.com backslash collections backslash Mormon discussions. And uh, with that, I guess we'll get into today's conversation, unless you've got anything else. No. And then also in the next coming weeks, we're also going to get together the dream team that we put together about probably a year ago oh, yeah. now with uh, Jana Reese and Anthony Miller. And me and you, and we're going to be going over the book. I think I have it up here on my shelf, Faith After Doubt by Brian McLaren. So Brian McLaren's a huge voice kind of in the spiritual space right now. And we're going to be diving into that and discussing all of that. So we'll be bringing in those two um, really wise, wonderful people to, to do that again. So a lot of great stuff going on with the podcast. And please, if you're listening and you haven't supported us, please do so that we can continue to do this work. Yeah, you do that by going to almostawaken.org, clicking the donate button, send us five bucks a month, something like that would be appreciated. If folks can do more, great, but just a small recurring donation helps us to keep these conversations going. So today I thought we'd talk about uh, navigating difficult conversations. And so um, the the little heading I'm going to say for each section, I borrowed from a website. And when I put the outline in the show notes, I will attribute that to the correct website. But then I made notes under each one and you added notes as well. So the first one was listen up. Don't, and and by the way, let's just say this too. Hard conversations aren't always over hard things. There are so many times that me and my wife have hard conversations because she said turn left and I heard turn right. And now we're bickering with each other. And uh, for the next, you know, 40 minutes over what I know I heard you say the wrong thing. And she goes, no, you. You, know, you heard the wrong thing. I said the right thing. And and we can get off track in our relationships so easy. And almost always there's these misunderstandings. And so we thought today we'd have a conversation around how to navigate difficult conversations. And so with that, the first one is listen up. Don't spend the time when the other person is talking, thinking about what you want to say next. By the way, I'm guilty of that all the time. Me too. Uh, Really listen to what they're saying. Try to understand their point of view. Ask them questions like, tell me more about that, or how does that make you feel? Don't talk over them. You may learn something about them that you didn't know or see the situation from a different angle. If they see that you've that you're switched on and engaged with them, 
they're more likely to do the same for you. And so some of the notes I made here, most people have a rationale for why they do what they do. In other words, whenever we're having a disagreement about somebody having done something wrong, we come to that conversation with our own assumptions about why they did something wrong. And generally speaking, people do have a logic or reason in their head for why they did what they did. And often it's not as black and white as they screwed up and you caught it. It's almost, you know, for me, at least in my relationships, it's almost always that both people, you know, the one person did what they thought was right. And in under certain circumstances and under their understanding of the experience, it was right. And then I come in with a completely different life experience, completely different perspective. And for me, it, it bumped into me. For me, it wasn't appreciated. For me, it was hurtful. But that person had no clue about that. And from their perspective, they were doing the right thing. So I put, um, why not gather all perspectives first before sharing your judgment? And often, once you know the other perspectives, the other person's behavior becomes understandable and even reasonable. Um, Look for, uh, I think you've got the rest of this, this, yeah. this section here. So what this, I, I had some notes, but I had something other, something else kind of come up as you were talking, which was, I remember the first time I went to a Buddhist Sangha and it was in Salt Lake and um, it was, we were kind of practicing the meditation of listening. And this is where I learned this skill essentially and learned what my brain was doing is someone would stand up and kind of share a truth or a struggle or their story or whatever they wanted to share. And then you would notice we would all sit and listen. And he kind of did this as a guided meditation where he would get up and say, do you notice your brain saying, what would I say next? Or what would I say that would be the right thing to say? Or what's the proper response? And your brain's kind of playing this game while they're talking, right? And so he drew attention to kind of what my brain was doing as the person was talking and turning it instead into a meditation where you, instead of focusing on your breath or focusing on a candle, you're focusing on them and their experience and their words and their body language and their feelings and their core values. And you're just focused totally on them, just like you would focus on the breath. And he kind of walked us through that. And it was really the first time that I noticed, oh my gosh, especially because I have a little bit of social anxiety. Oh my gosh, I did not realize how much when someone was talking, I'm thinking I'm going to say that next because that's probably the right thing to say in this situation and whatever. And I'm thinking about my own ego and how can I share my own story, you know, when they're sharing their story. Anyway, and really turning it instead into a meditation where you're really sucked into listening to someone. And so what I try to do now when I'm in that space of like, I'm really going to key in and listen to this person, especially if I'm with a client, this is what I'm really doing. So I'm, I try to listen for core values. And it's just kind of the tool that I use to get into that space of this is a meditation and I'm focused in on you and not what my ego is trying to think of as far as what to say next. And you're right. Like people have different core values that and that directs how we see the world. And when I look for those core values, when someone's talking and I'm trying to understand them, it helps me to really kind of quiet my own ego to listen because most of hard conversations, you know, if you ask any therapist or negotiation professional, they're always going to say really attentive listening is the foundation of how you do any kind of difficult conversation. 
Yeah. And I think that when you listen to another person and you really like, like sincerely, like, I want to really understand you. In fact, when my wife and I were in marriage therapy, um, maybe six months ago, a year ago, um, and I'd heard this phrase numerous times before, but it's that whole seek to understand before being understood. Right. And so when you spend time really trying to hear what another person's experience is like, you're gathering information so that rather than the judgments your ego wants to make about why somebody does what they do, you're actually listening to understand why they made the decision process the way they did. And I think it, it creates a lot more compassion I think it creates a lot more understanding. Again, seek to understand before being understood. And I think it creates a path where both people, rather than being adversaries to each other, can be loving friends who are trying to work out some difficult issue. Or again, maybe not a difficult issue, but one in which there's a ton of tension around. Yeah. And I think, so when we're talking about hard and difficult conversation, religion and politics will always be in that category. And we'll talk about why that is kind of later on. Um, but I noticed that for the only way that I can engage in, in kind of a political conversation, which I enjoy doing with people who will do it with me, is to really recognize that people have different core values. And if I can find that, then I can understand them enough to have a conversation where we're not talking over each other, right? So in politics, for example, the left has core values of justice and compassion. There's a lot of core values of the left, but justice justice and compassion are the two that like really resonate with people on the left. And on the right, there's core values of purity, loyalty, tradition, and authority. And often how you were parented affects whether you kind of resonate with the right or the left. So if you were parented by nurturers, you're more likely to be on the left. If the structure and order of the world came from authority parents or authority religions, you're more likely um, to see that authority piece as the thing stopping chaos and as a good thing. And so when I'm in debate with a person, I'm trying to find what is the core value driving that person or notice at loud, or I'll see, even say out loud, I appreciate that you have a core value of compassion and that's really driving your opinion, but I wonder if this situation calls for a different value or I have a value of this. And then it's not, I'm a good person and I see everything right and I'm right and everybody else is stupid and wrong. Then it's like, oh, I see your core value and that needs to be a part of the conversation. I have this core value and I, so I see it this way. And whenever I do, whenever I do that, um, the, the conversation for me tends, cause I talked about, I talk about religion a lot with people and politics a lot with people. So when I do that, I tend to have a better outcome than when, um, than when I don't do that. And so for me, looking for those core values is really, really important. And maybe just one last thing to go along with that before we get to number two, in some of these difficult conversations, it really is a negotiation. It's not really an argument over something went wrong. It's rather that two people come to a situation having being different than each other and wanting their world, whether it's the restaurant you go to or some other thing, you want it to be a certain way. Your partner wants it to be something different and you've entered a negotiation. And so by listening to people, you get the feel, as you're pointing out with core values, what's important to them. And so as you're negotiating, like how do we come out with a compromise where both people win? And in order for both people to win, both people have to get part of what they want at least. And maybe sometimes you can create a, a path to where both people get their needs met. 
Um, and so maybe, hey, maybe I can see that going to this restaurant is really important to you. Let's go to your restaurant tonight and let's grab lunch at my place tomorrow. You know, there are ways in which when you listen to folks, you gauge what are the most important things that they're fighting for. And you can start to maybe sense what room there is to, to make things happen so that they can have those things. Um, this number two here is uh, be clear about how you feel and what you want. A big part of tackling difficult conversations is communicating clearly and directly. Try planning beforehand what you want to say. Now, that's not always possible, but if you can, so that your nerves or emotions don't get the better of you. If you need facts to back up your point of view, you could do a Google search and make some notes on your phone. Start by explaining how you feel, and I think that's a big one, and what you think and why, and use I statements. So instead of saying, you don't care about me at all, which, again, we have these mechanisms, right, that uh, send us off into a path of the least likelihood of the conversation being successful. And when you say things like, you don't care about me at all, uh, that's one of them. But you could try this, quote, I feel really upset when... And then you can say when you do this or when this happens or when I miss out on this occasion. And um, it's just a better way of talking, right? Using you can make the other person feel attacked and they'll be less likely to listen to you. Describe exactly what you want from the discussion. Do you want them to apologize to you or to acknowledge your point of view or to behave differently in the future? This will help them see the things from your point of view and give them a very clear way forward. And then the notes I made here, um, often people intuitively recognize their wants are ego-based and they, rather than state their real reasons for wanting another person to human differently, we give a partial reason or a false reason that will sound more acceptable. Uh, by the way, this game's bullshit and unhealthy. It prevents you from being accountable to your own ego and unhealthiness. You have to own your shit. And what I mean by that, Britt, is that when I'm in a disagreement with my wife, and she does something that's not wrong at all, or if it is wrong, it's not wrong for the reasons that are bothering me. But my ego is telling me like, oh, that just bothers me. She's chewing with her mouth open, for instance. Let's say whatever. She doesn't do that, by the way, but <laughs> let's say she does. And it just annoys me, right? And and I'll come up with some other reason to, because I don't want to tell her that my thing is I can't just live with her chewing with her mouth open. I'll, I'll come up with something like, yeah, you know, data says that spit flying around the room, more people get sick, whatever. We just make up bullshit reasons and they're partial truths because we don't really want to acknowledge the, the peace inside of us that has a unhealthy reason for trying to manipulate people into being what we want them to be. And what I think, um, at least in part, number two here is saying is we've got to be honest and we've got to be direct and clear about what it is that's going on and to state the problem. And the other thing it says too here is um, it says, start by explaining how you feel. And often in difficult conversations, we rarely ever start off with feelings. We almost always start off with blame, shame, manipulation, some other thing that's going on. Or we come down hard on the other person and we don't give them a chance to explain. Again, back to number one, listening up. In my mind, when you start with feelings, and we'll get into this more and further along, when you start with feelings, that really sets, I think, a, a more solid groundwork to be able to feel cared that both sides can feel cared about and uh, the conversation can head in uh, healthy directions. I also wrote, you have a right to state your needs, wants, and desires. 
what you need to feel content or safe, what you need to have room to grow or to be productive. But, sh but such should be stated in a way that makes it just as safe for the other person's needs, wants, and desires to be reasonable as well. Unless someone is being directly harmed, all requests should be reasonable requests, right? So unless you're trying to tell a kid to get out of the street or telling somebody to watch out or you shove somebody because they're about to get hit by a car or you tell a abusive person that they have to stop or you, you interject to stop someone from physically or emotionally or verbally assaulting another person, you should always make reasonable requests. Both sides should have freedom to go like, yeah, I, I would love it if this would happen. And the other person should feel just as safe going, I don't want to do that. Uh, I'm, I'm also free to say no to your reasonable request. And, um, this one, I really, let me just interject here. This please. one, I really had to learn because if you are socialized as a woman in patriarchy, whether that be in modern, you know, in, in society or in, um, a patriarchal religion, you're going to be taught really that you're kind of responsible for other people's feelings. And so to kind of do this like half truth game in order to not hurt someone's feelings. I remember there was like a, when I used to go to a youth dance, there was a thing on, we, they would give us kind of a talk or a lesson before we would have a dance that would say, you know, if a boy asks you to dance, make sure that you say yes so that you don't hurt their feelings. Mm. And it's like, wow, you know, like that did not age well. But I remember getting messages like that of like, you need, you know, smile and don't rock the boat and don't hurt anyone's feelings because that's unkind. And so it took Brene Brown saying, this is one of her sayings that clear is kind to kind of shock me out of how much I was raised to tiptoe around other people to make sure that everybody else was comfortable and that that is actually unkind. That was like a huge um, epiphany for me. And I think for, for all women who are kind of raised to do that, that tiptoe thing. And, and so when I, so she says here, uh, not getting clear with a colleague about your expectations because it feels too hard yet holding them accountable or blaming them for not delivering is unkind. Talking about people rather than to them is unkind. Feeding people have truths or bullshit to make them feel better, which almost always is about making ourselves feel uncomfortable feel comfortable is unkind. And so I remember the first time that I just like finally realized that clear was kind in a communication with my husband. And for 10 years, I'm not kidding you for 10 years, I would do the dishes with resentment and I would, cause I want him to notice that I'm doing the dishes. And so I would throw out these like passive aggressive statements or like must be nice to like watch the game. I have to do these dishes. And it was so in looking back, like it's so insane how long that I did that. Like I'm embarrassed to say, but like we, I gotta be honest here, like how long I played that like bullshit game and didn't tell them to didn't tell him how it made me feel was not clear, but yet hated him every time he sat down to watch a soccer game and I was still doing the dishes. And so it took me literally a decade and Brene Brown to like snap, at, you know, snap me out of my internalized patriarchy to go, Chad, I know that you love me, but when I make dinner on Sunday and, and I have to clean it up, 
while you get to play with the kids or you get to rest, I feel unseen. I feel like my work isn't valued. And I would love that whoever cooks dinner on Sunday, the other person cleans up so that we're able to, so that I don't have that feeling because I know that you love me. And like, that's all that it took, you know, because he does love me and he, you know, he just didn't notice or he just, you know, I was just was never clear. I was just really passive aggressive and grumpy and resentful and kind of like danced around it. But I never just said it clear like that. And then once it was clear and I wasn't attacking him, like you're a terrible husband because you don't. It's like I just started with I I know this is not how you're trying to make me feel, but I feel really unvalued when I have to make dinner and clean it up on Sundays. We really only cook on Sundays. And so can we, can we share this um, anyway? And he was happy to do that. But until I stated it, like my feelings and my expectations in a clear way, like it was 10 years of like, angry scrubbing dishes like the you know just so resentful because i was playing like the half truth bullshit game where like i want you to know what's going on i want you to notice my feelings i want you to notice me angry over here but i'm not going to say anything and it's just really <laughs> it's almost embarrassing like how long i played that game instead of just be clear anyway yeah and and i'll add you know back to the reasonable request when both sides are operating from that, that point of view, like I'm going to make a reasonable request and the other person has a right to say no, but there's consequences obviously for when whatever choice people make, it's really how consent works in a rubber meets the road, the world around you. So, um, you know, we think of consent, you and I did an episode on consent, maybe whatever it was three, four months ago. Um, and when we did that episode, we were talking about various kinds of consent, one of them being sexual, for instance. And um, it's really easy in like this moment where intimacy is about to happen. You're looking for enthusiastic consent before you proceed. But what we don't think about is that consent should operate throughout our interactions all through the day. And any time that we are telling another human being what to do when we don't have uh, work work authority over them, for instance, like, hey, we have to get this project done. Like that's that's normal. That's part of how the world works. But when two people in equal authority are communicating to each other and one person needs something from the other, by doing so through reasonable requests, it's the way that you seek consent from the other person. It's the way that you treat the other person as if they really are equal to you. Um, and so if in your relationships, whether it be your marriage or your friendships or, um, you know, whatever it is, family relationships, if you're telling other people all the time what to do and you're forming your uh, instructions to them in, in statements of, of imposition rather than uh, asking folks to help you out to do something or to get something accomplished, um, just recognize like that's, that's not consensual between two human beings of equal uh, standing as you're uh, communicating in, in this society. And did you, you had a few other things here too, correct? Yeah. I just want to bring up lying also because part of like um, skirting the truth or like kind of doling down your feelings or your expectations is that it is a kind of lie. And this is one thing that like Jordan Peterson and Sam Harris are 
completely united in, which, which is rare because they debate a lot of things. Well, maybe not rare. They agreed on, on a lot of things too, but they're both very strong in this idea of like the freedom and power and relationship power that comes when you just choose not to lie, even though it's hard. So we may lie to the outside world to get what we want. We lie to avoid pain in our relationships. We'll kind of lie to, um, I don't want you know, all of my feelings or all of my expectations or every, you know, or all of my beliefs or to, to be out there because it's going to cause some pain. And so we like dull it. And this is really us manipulating the world. And it can be an outright lie, but it can also be lying by omission, which isn't any better. And so when that happens, something really breaks down fundamentally. So if our boss does something that we don't like, not confronting her about it is still a kind of lying. We're acting inauthentically, not according with our beliefs. And and when we keep doing that, we kind of start to paper over our lies and the lies kind of take on a life of their own. And so I know for me, um, when I was first kind of, when I was leaving a faith and my husband was still in that faith, I did this a lot because I really didn't want to cause pain. And so I would like say, I'm not sure if this is true when really deep down, it's like, I know that this, is, I, I know that I'm not okay with this. And um, doing that made things worse because I, again, if clear is kind, I was really unclear about what I was feeling. I was really unclear about what I was at. And that actually just made the problem longer and made the problem worse because I wasn't, I wasn't being clear in my communication about this is how I'm feeling. Like this is, this is the, really how I'm feeling and not just like, oh, I'm kind of struggling with one or two issues. Like, no, I was like in a tailspin, but I, because I was really internalizing this, like don't cause pain to other people. I really wasn't clear about, um, what I was experiencing and that made it worse for our relationship. And so I think we do have to notice how much we do those little lies. Not that we have to be like a bulldozer with the truth. That's not kind either, but the more we can be really clear about um, our feelings and what we're wanting um, and have those conversations, gosh, that would have, that would have saved a lot of heartache in my relationship, especially when we were first married. Yeah. And I think we ought to recognize the patterns that are in our life. So for instance, I had a friend that I grew up with. I was on a little dead end street and there were about 10 kids from my school system that all lived on this street. We're all great friends. And one of these friends, he was just dishonest about everything. Anytime you had a story about what happened in your day, he had a bigger fish story to tell. And over time, like as a kid, you started to see the pattern that he's just not honest. And so then as life went on, even in instances where he did tell the truth, you were always skeptical of what he was saying. And I noticed that if we make a habit of being dishonest about what we're thinking and feeling, what we need, people aren't as, you know, people aren't as gullible as we hope they are in each of those moments. And over time, people start to sense that we're not always telling the truth about our feelings. And so if I can maybe throw my wife under the bus just a little bit. My wife has a little bit of a, a martyr complex at times where if something's going wrong, her defense mechanism is just to take the fall for it, right? And so often in early in our marriage, when I was being just a real jerk, she would take the blame just so we could move on from it. But what happened is now there's this pattern where when we have a disagreement and I really do think 
I'm coming from a good place, but I also sense that I'm right on the razor's edge of if my motives were any different, it could be seen as me being unhealthy, right? And my wife will come to that situation today being genuine and going like, no, no, that's my fault. I, that, I definitely messed up there. I'm really sorry. But we have a history of her saying that when it really isn't her fault. And so I, I've had a lot of struggle trying to figure out how to retrust what is said because she would always take the fall for my unhealthiness. And now in a world where I'm really trying to be accountable to who I am, I need honest feedback. So because if the feedback is sincere and honest and I can trust it, I can still pick out like, oh, you know what? Maybe I'm not being exactly healthy in this moment. And I can start to sense and lean into that. So when you have patterns of being dishonest about your feelings, the person that you're in conversations with on a regular basis they're going to struggle to be able to trust what's being said. And you don't want that because it may not be a big deal the the first time you do it or the 20th time you do it. But 25 years later, it it adds tension and difficulty to working these things out. Yeah. And it gets a little tricky here. So we had this, this um, comment of, you know, I'm, Sometimes I feel like I'm impulsive and I'm too honest and I have to learn to bite my tongue. And this is different than lying because dishonesty comes with intent. And I do believe in tact. So like if someone died and a mo- another mother is telling their kid they're in heaven now, like that's not appropriate for me to say like, you know, put my head in and say all of my beliefs about that. Like that's a really inappropriate time to do that. And that's not lying because if they were to ask me, you know, my opinion on where grandma is, you know, I would have something to say. I wouldn't be dishonest. So I I do believe in tact, you know, because again, if kindness is our objective, then um, I can be kind in that situation. I don't have to be an ass when, you know, somebody dies and somebody's telling a heaven story. That's not good for anybody. Um, But yeah, I, I do think that you're more likely to get to a good place if you're both working from truth. And when you're not, it's just going to make it worse. It's going to make the problem longer. Or even if you get to a place where your things are functional, like there's been times in my marriage where things are functional, but it's only because we're like pretending a little bit like we're ignoring a problem or like I'm way more in faith crisis than he realizes. And so that's why he thinks things are okay, you know, and then whatever peace you get from that or whatever kind of lack of contention you get from that, it doesn't feel good. It doesn't feel like, wow, my husband really deeply, we have a really deeply intimate relationship right now. It's like, no, things are okay because he doesn't know everything or I haven't been fully honest with everything. And so I've really, um, I was really raised to tiptoe and to make people feel comfortable. And I've had to make the switch over to yes, use tact, but clear, you know, clear is kind. And the more clear I can be in those relationships, the more likely we're going to get to where we both feel good about a decision or we both feel seen, even though we're different. Um, And that really only comes from, from speaking from speaking the truth. And that's, that's harder than we realize. If you ask anyone on the street, do you lie? Are you a liar? They're like, no, I'm not a liar. But like, we, we, we do it a lot more than we realize those, those little white lies of like, yeah, you're fine, you know, or whatever it is. Um, they're, they're a lot. And I think we don't realize how much we kind of try to keep the peace by 
maybe manipulating some something that we believe or a feeling that we're having or whatever it is in order to try to avoid conflict. And I've been, I've been caught in that trap many times. And I just always learn that if I can be clear um, and if I can go from a feelings place and if I can get ego out of the conversation and connect, um, I'm going to, I'm going to get to a place where like now my husband will do the dishes on Sunday and I'm not for 10 years resentfully scrubbing the dishes because I just didn't say, this is how I feel when you do this. I just didn't say it for so long. I was passive aggressive. Why did I do that? <laughs> so many dishes. Why? These, uh, these conversations can be really complex, right? Like both people bring their history to them. Both people have their own shadows. People, uh, both sides have their egos at work and both sides are trying to be even in, in instances where both sides are trying to be healthy to each other and really get at the problem. There, there's so many facets to these uh, to these kinds of difficult conversations that it's hard to see your own blind spots. And um, I, I think when you add dishonesty to it, uh, it creates instability for the other person. They don't really understand where the stable ground is in the conversation. And so um, yes, tact is important. You're hitting on that, but on some level, people also need to know the truth of why things aren't working, why there's a tension, why there's an argument happening so that they're not, uh, working towards resolving it from the wrong angle and that they can actually hit at the problem at hand. Um, but yeah, I, I, honesty is a big deal. And we all add some dishonesty to protect each other. And now you now these second half of life adults all have to go figure out when when to say what and when to keep your mouth shut, right? And that's that's hard. That's that's not easy. <laughs> no. Uh, number three it says, uh, look at the issue from their perspective. Again, we mentioned in the beginning: seek to understand before being understood. It can be easy to get caught up in how you feel, especially if you've been hurt or are feeling awkward about something. By the way, this happens. My wife doesn't know what it is that brings me shame or embarrassment or whatever. And, and maybe I had a conversation with somebody and I dropped the ball on something and now they're in my house for some party or whatever. And my wife starts talking about the thing that now re reminds both of us in the room that I've dropped the ball and messed up. And so in my uh, discomfort of embarrassment and shame, I will do something that feels to my wife and is to some degree me scolding her to like, be quiet, drop it, move on. And she doesn't know, like, she's like, so since she says something out loud, like what's going on, what's the problem, you know? And, and now we're, now we're just rolling down the path of I'm pissed and she's hurt. And, and, and so sometimes us feeling awkward has our ego trying to silence the room or whatever's going on. Meanwhile, it really is our unhealthiness. That's, poking at the other person and because they don't understand. And so you really have to grant uh, a degree of, of charity for the people in your life who come to each moment, not knowing the life experience that you've had, even just what happened to you yesterday. And, uh, and so it says it's easy to get caught up in how you feel, especially if you've been hurt or feeling awkward about something before you jump to any conclusions though, try to put yourself in the other person's shoes to see the situation from their perspective, you could try asking yourself, what are five reasons the person might have acted the way they did? Has this person done said anything like this before, or is this totally out of character? 
Is there anything else going on in their life that might be a factor? Did I do anything that may have hurt, confused, angered them that might account for what's happened? People do and say things for many different reasons. It's not always about you. And so I put, uh, sometimes I feel shame because another person said something that pointed out a deficiency of mine. I lash out to impose that the other person at the other person in an effort to be able to move on from my own shame and what I was talking about with being embarrassed, but such often neglects that they don't see the situation the way I do and could never have grasped my experience of feeling shame and are only unintentionally dragging it on. Um, when you take time to understand why people do what they do, again, we hit on this in the beginning, often it becomes reasonable and it's only the missing gaps for why we think their behavior is unreasonable, that we are sitting in some sort of judgment and, and frustration towards somebody. When we listen, we often get the missing pieces that tell us why they did what they did. And it's it's those pieces that are necessary for reconciliation. It's those pieces that allow us to go like, oh, I now see why you did that. And now understanding that, I know I can start to release and process and regulate my own body and my own feelings about this situation. Yeah. So I had two things come up for me. Obviously marriage is going to come up for this, for this one, because your greatest practice in looking um, at something or yourself from another perspective is going to be in marriage. Like that's where the rubber hits the road. And so in marriage, you're looking at yourself. You're not only practicing seeing the world in another way because your partner is going to see the world in a different way, but you're seeing yourself from another point of view. And that is not easy. Like that is not a great mirror. Sometimes it can be, um, really hard to look at yourself from your partner's point of view. Like that's, that's really humbling because that takes away all your own biases or your own greatness. And so what happens, um, I'm thinking of this just in my work as a spiritual director, is that it can be easier when you're enmeshed and you have a religion that forces you to play certain roles. You can feel like you're avoiding a lot of that messiness, but it comes at a cost, right? You have to force yourself to be someone you're not at some level. And so it reduces the, the intimacy. And you find this with all enmeshed families. They may not fight. They may not have, you know, huge outer issues, but it's because everyone is kind of fitting a box of what's appropriate. And so the intimacy is reduced because you're contorting yourself in order to do that. Mm. And so I see a lot of people who say, who inside religion will look and say, yeah, that couple, one of them went through a faith transition and now they're divorced. And they'll look at it as if, you know, losing that faith was the thing that caused divorce, you know, is how they'll see that when really the marriage became untenable because one person broke away from the entrenched relationship of prescribed roles and actions and beliefs. And the marriage wasn't able to handle that. Right. And so- mm. The other thing that comes up for me as far as looking at f things from another perspective is I had one, I had a lot of failed days as a teacher when I was, um, I was a history teacher. That was my trade before I got into all of this stuff. And I had one moment where I was like, that was a good teacher moment. And it was, I had a girl in my class who was schizophrenic and she was bullied quite a bit in my class. She had a lot of, uh, behaviors that would be socially strange in, 
a high school class. And these kids were pretty merciless. And so one day I'd had enough of this and it was like, I've got, I knew about the girl, I knew her history, but the kids didn't. And so I tried this, like, can I get the bullying to go down if I can get them to see the world from her perspective? And so I sent her out on a fake errand and I told the class, um, some things that I knew about her family. I told them, you know, that her parent had a parent had committed suicide or a family member, two of her family, direct family members had committed suicide, how it is to be, um, how it is to be schizophrenic and some of the struggles that come not with her specifically, but in general with schizophrenia. And I kind of just explained, imagine what that would feel like to, see things that aren't there or to um, have this kind of mental illness in your family because she, um, her hygiene was kind of lacking and, and I was kind of just letting them see, let's look at this from another perspective. And by the time I finished that story, there was such empathy for how hard this girl's life was that the bullying stopped. And it was like the behaviors were still the same. She was still saying, you know, things that were kind of crazy. She was still inappropriate at times, but the bullying completely stopped just because I got these kids to stop for a second and hear their story. And it was a message to me how effective that was, even though I was just trying something, how effective that was really, really taught me that, um, everyone's kind of the hero of their own story. And if you knew someone's story, you, we wouldn't be as judgmental as we usually are at first glance. And I still judge people. I still judge people wrongly. I still judge people. And then I hear their story and I feel bad that I judge them poorly. That still happens to me all the time. Um, but the more you can get it really, like you said, is this like, why is this person acting that way? Um, if you can get at that story, that's where we can start to have more compassion instead of just saying, wow, that they really hurt me because I feel this when they did this to me, um, rather than seeing kind of the whole, the whole picture. Yeah. One of the things I'm always saying is that people come to each moment, honestly, and when we understand uh, another person and why they did what they did, we almost assuredly will come to realize that they came to that decision, honestly. And yet our, our brain tells us to judge people as having done something wrong because it's not the way we would have done it in that moment. But it really is our own blind spots that stops us from seeing their reasoning. Uh, watching Jeffrey Dahmer on Netflix, right? Watching on Hulu, there's... Uh, Steve Carroll from The Office, and he plays a psychologist who's uh, been kidnapped by his patient uh, in therapy practice who also happens to be a serial killer. And as you're watching shows like that, and, and all of you can think of movies or shows where you sit and watch, and the uh, antagonist, uh, the villain, is this really broken down person who's making really bad decisions, but when the movie unfolds their life and you see how they got to be who they were, you're like, you know, if, if those things happened to me and I was born with that predisposition, I probably end up doing the same thing they did. And I think often if we take the time to, to really understand another person's perspective, we can sense how they got there. And, and that really is the difference maker in these difficult conversations. It really is. It's a, it's a, it's a game changer when you, when you take the time to really understand why someone did what they did. 
Uh, anything else here or we can jump in the number four? No, go to the next one, which is the one that is the hardest for me. I like, I'm kind of rating myself as we go. I'm like, yeah, I, I can listen to people. This one is like F minus do not do. I, I, and I want to ask you if you're the distancer or the pursuer, but yeah. let me explain it first to the viewer and then, uh, and listener. And then, and then you can jump in and tell me how your marriage works and which one of you is the distancer, or which one's the pursuer. I'll tell you what we are. If things aren't going to plan, take a break. Sometimes you can do everything you can to have a constructive chat, but if the other person isn't willing to do the same, and normally it's both people are escalating the conversation, right? But if the other person isn't willing to do the same, it can feel like it's going nowhere. Here are a few options if the other person is too upset, angry, or emotional to respond. If you feel safe doing so, encourage them to express their emotions. Getting something off their chest may be the first step in resolving the issue. I'll often tell my wife, like, tell me how you feel. Uh, give me your feelings. And we said that earlier in this conversation, like state feelings. Um, walk away and try again when they've had time to simmer down. You could ask someone who isn't closely involved to join you both to help reduce the tension and encourage both sides to try to reach a workable outcome. And that was the statement from the article. And then I wanted to add this idea of distancer and pursuer. So when there is an argument, when it begins to escalate, in most relationships, there's the person who has their defense mechanism of trying to get away, put some distance so that things can calm down. Also, so that you don't have to be more irritated by this person that you're pissed with that's you know in your face about something. And then there's the person who chases, who runs after the other person because it has to be resolved now. There's such a need that I don't, you know, I don't want to sit with these feelings that are inside me right now. So it's better if I chase this person from the bedroom to the front room, sit down on the couch next to them and keep hashing it out until we get some resolution. And uh, so I'm curious, Britt, in, in your marriage, <laughs> who's the distancer and who's the pursuer? The chaser. I am the pursuer. You're the chaser. <laughs> we will solve this now. <laughs> Could you guess which one I am? Uh, let's see. I don't know. Are you the distancer? No, I'm the you're chaser the too. You're the pursuer too? I yeah. thought maybe you'd be different. I don't know. No, no, yeah, no, that makes sense. That was my first instinct, but I was going to, I was throwing you a bone that maybe there was why something. Why do you chase? Let's talk. Oh my gosh. Why, okay. Why chase? Some therapy with Brit here. So there's a couple, <laughs> there's like multiple things going on. Um, so for me, it's like, I want, I, I, I enjoy debate, which is, um, part of the thing here. I always, and in my family, I'm known for this. Like I always have to have the last word. Like I want to conclude it. I want to like restate your thing and state my thing. I always have to like be the concluding speaker. Right. So that's like something there too. And I think for me, it's like, I'm the pursuer because it's very hard for me to just stop when I'm in it because I want to figure it out now. I don't like the contention. I don't, this idea of like, I'm going to stop in the middle of an argument and walk away and come back when my, when it's kind of simmered down, when I can, you know, better communicate my feelings. I, I still don't do it. Like I still don't do it. It's so hard for me to stop in the middle because I really 
believe that like, if you could just, if I could just say it better, if I could say the perfect sentence, you would understand me and I would understand you. Like you say your perfect sentence and then like, we'll come up with the perfect solution. And I don't want to walk away from it because like, we need to do it right now. And then if you walk away, then it feels really icky for me. It feels like we're not uh, in a good spot. Whereas like for my husband, he'll go to sleep and wake up and be like, hi, honey. And I'm like, don't hi, honey me. Like I am still in this, like I'm still in the debate trying to figure out the perfect sentence to make sure to make this all work out. So there's like multiple things going on for me, but I find it really, really difficult to, um, when I'm really engaged in something, even if it's a debate, just like we're talking about politics, like it's not even like something personal in my life. It's very difficult for me to step away. And when I do, when someone does step away, um, I really want to like, I just, I just have this false belief in my head that if, if we got to the root of the data and everything was on the table, we could perfectly understand each other and come to a perfect solution of the world or our problem or our relationship or what it is. And that's just not the case. (laughs) Like it's, it's not the case. Like as, as good as language is, and as much as we use it, I cannot take all of my data and my experiences and my feelings and every podcast I've ever listened to and put it into your brain. And so I, I can hurt the relationship by trying to do that. I remember there was one time we went to like a girl's, it was like a hotel. We were just going to have a girl's night. And I started talking to someone about religion. She had gone the, um, full Mormon to fundamentalist Christian route. And we started going at it and it was like two in the morning and these poor women, they just wanted a night away from the kids. And I was still going about this. And I, I physically felt like I could not stop. Like it was an issue. And then finally we just fell asleep and I woke up the next day thinking like I ruined this whole girl's weekend because I literally could not say, you know what, we're not going anywhere. This is not why we're here. And I didn't stop. And I feel, I still feel really bad about it. I've, cause it was these moms trying to get away and I kept everyone up talking about religion. So yeah, this one is hard for me. I'm definitely the pursuer. So how does this come out with you? Yeah. So everything you just said, it sounded like you were speaking for me because all of that related so well. Um, like you, I'm a problem solver and I really do believe that if I just take this five more minutes, then I'm going to get through. She's going to understand what I'm saying. She's going to communicate well. I'm going to communicate well. And we're going to start to uh, create reconciliation and calm this thing down and bring it back to neutral, right? It never happens. If you take me and my wife's top 25 fights we've ever had, We could have walked away for a moment and taken a break at midnight. And now it's three o'clock in the morning and we're on the verge of divorce, right? Like it's three o'clock. We're both pissed. We're tired as hell. Our thoughts aren't even coming out more clearly. They're coming out less clearly. And it becomes uh, just escalated and escalated and escalated to the point where both people just think that you've you've, you've hit the end of the road on this relationship. If folks can learn one thing from this podcast, It's that if you are the chaser, stop to give some distance. And I'll tell you, we were asking the reasons why we chase. Um, One is lizard brain, right? So when you escalate a conversation and now it's an argument and a disagreement, 
you leave system two and you go back to system one, lizard brain. And, uh, and in lizard brain, you're not going to make good decisions about how this confrontation should go. But you think you will, but you won't. <laughs> so anytime you are tense, emotional, upset, you are almost never in your logical frontal cortex. And instead, you are in flight or uh, fight uh, or flee or freeze or whatever it is. The other thing, too, is that I found the reason I'm a chaser, Britt, is because I feel shit that I don't normally feel. And I don't want to sit and feel this for two more hours while I lay in bed and wait for everyone to calm down. And now we'll revisit it in the morning. I want to work through these feelings so I can get rid of them so I can get back to being in love with the person that that I'm in this disagreement with, a child or a parent or my spouse. And I just... I don't like sitting with these unresolved feelings. And I, I don't even know if I know how to yet. Um, we did that secular Buddhism. And I think I've gotten moderately good at sitting with feelings until they hit a certain threshold. And once they get there, I can't manage them anymore. It's like that quote that says, if you think you're enlightened, spend a week with your family. It's like, mm, <laughs> nope, not there yeah. yet. <laughs> but yeah, I I feel all of that. It's it's really difficult for me to to take a break and get out of my lizard brain. It's it's interesting for me and I I know enough about myself to know when it's happening, so that's at least some of that mindfulness getting in there, but I'll notice if I'm in a if in I'm if I'm in an argument and I get even more ego into it because I like winning debates. I used, you know, I like debating and I like winning debates, so I get a little ego in there too. But I definitely can go full lizard brain where I'll completely lose, um, you know, that connection piece of, I want to be understood. And now I want to see how I want to prove to you that what you're saying is so stupid. And that's when I get super lizard brain. Right. And to (laughs) this, to this day, that night, when you're talking about three in the morning and your lizard brain Mm. has taken complete control, I won't know, like, I won't be able to sense I made a mistake by saying that, or that was too far. I can't do it from that lizard brain place. And so, but in the morning, and I'm, I am really good at this. I'm bad at walking away when it's three in the morning. I'm very good next morning of saying like in the morning when the lizard brain is calm, uh, I can say, Oh, that was really inappropriate that I said that. And I'm really sorry. And um, we kind of just know in my marriage that, the next day conversation, I'll be able to see, you know, where I need to take ownership, take ownership of my shit. But in lizard brain at 3am, I have no idea what my shit is. <laughs> I have no idea. I have no concept of where I'm wrong. I'm just going to finally make you understand the point that you're not seeing. Right. And I'm still can get fully in that space. So this is one that I'm still working on. Um, I am good at like reconciling morning after and being able to communicate then, but yeah, I still have a really hard time walking away from those kind of heated, heated conversations in order to get out of lizard brain because I just, I get really sucked into it and then I'm there and I don't know I'm there. And, and notice too, I think all of us who are adults, we intuitively understand that if we give some space and time, revisit the situation in the morning, 99 out of 100 times, 
it is much calmer and it can be kind of resolved pretty quickly. In the moment, it almost always goes south if you push it, right? And yet all of us recognize intuitively that our egos, at least usually half of the relationship at least, and sometimes it's both people, half of the relationship wants to keep pushing it and nothing good comes from it. You have enough um, You have enough research now, right? I'm 44 years old. I've got enough anecdotal evidence in my head to know that the last hundred times this has happened, if I keep pushing this at 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock, now it's midnight, it, it, it never, it almost never goes well. And in the moments where I do resist that and somehow put some space between us, when we revisit in the morning, it is so much better and easier to resolve. And so if you can just look over to your ego and tell him or her to shut up and get out of the way hmm. and, and sit with those feelings for a night, you're going to not do and not say things that you wish you hadn't done and wish you hadn't said. Yeah, sometimes so I've tried that. This is why I get it. I feel like an F minus on this. There's sometimes where, um, you know, we've taken a step back either because of circumstances or because I've I've tried to do that, take a step back. I'm a little bit too triggered right now to to speak rationally and come back to it. But then I don't sleep all night because I'm crafting the perfect debate in my head. And so my lizard brain is still going. It's like my lizard brain is still paying ping pong, but nobody's playing back with me. I just keep hitting them, you know, in my brain. And so it's, it's really hard when that lizard brain takes over to have the mindfulness to say like, this is not acting from my best self. This is not acting from my highest self and my frontal lobe and the more developed parts of my brain. It's really hard to get, to get sucked into it. Um, yeah. So it's, it's one that I still struggle with, but uh, I'm trying to get better. I'm trying to get better at this one. I don't know how, I don't know how this works with you and Chad, but um, when I give my wife time to sit with what happened and to think it through, I'm so much more likely to get the apology I need or the change in behavior I need when something unhealthy is happening. And, and I almost never get it in the midst of the escalated fight. Yeah, never. you're never going to get an apology when your ego is asking that apology, like at the point of a sword, you know what I mean? Yeah, like yeah, attacking to get the apology. Nothing apology now. You, you only get a real <laughs> apology. And what you're wanting from the apology is not just the words, like you're wanting the, the intimacy back. You're wanting to feel yeah. understood. You're wanting all of that. Yeah, that has never happened to me by me fighting for it at three in the morning. Never, never <laughs> once. But... um if I lead with, I'm, I'm going to own like next morning, I'm pretty good at, at wanting to reconcile and own my own stuff because I, I don't like, I don't like sitting with things that I'm responsible for that I need to say sorry for that I haven't. I don't, I don't like that feeling. And so I force myself, it's like guilt, right? It's my, it's a course corrector. It's a morality course corrector. I acted in a way that I shouldn't have, and I would like to deal with it so that I don't feel the guilt, which is not a bad thing. That's different from shame. I'm not feeling shame in that moment. I'm feeling guilt. And that's, that's a good moral course corrector. I, I acted not according to my values. So I'll come back. And if I lead with, here's the things that I'm responsible for, and I'm sorry for this. And I'm sorry I said that. And I'm trying to understand this. That's when I'll get the apology because then 
my ego has said, I'm not in this anymore. I'm to the side and I'm trying to, you know, re reach out an olive branch and take responsibility for my stuff. And that's when he will feel comfortable to do the same. But yeah, if your egos are fighting for that, you know, and then both egos get involved, um, you're never going to get it. I've never got anything good at, out of those yeah. conversations. So yeah. And and it's near impossible. This is a segue that it's near impossible when one side has done something unhealthy and the other one's trying to get it understood. Like, Hey, I want you to hear me. This something really unhealthy happened here. It, it almost never succeeds in those escalated arguments when someone's in the wrong and someone's trying to point it out. It is impossible in the conversations where both sides are adamant that they are right. And there is some truth to both sides, right? So number five, agree to disagree. Not all conversations like this are going to have a happy ending. There will be some people, situations, or behaviors that you just can't talk through. And that's okay. Agreeing to disagree doesn't mean you agree with their perspective. You're just protecting yourself by choosing which battles to fight. And here's what I wrote take the tie. This is the thing me and my wife are saying all the time to each other in these kinds of uh, disputes where one, because in every misunderstanding, somebody either said something wrong or somebody heard something wrong. It, it doesn't matter whether it's a specific word. It doesn't matter if it's intention or motive. One person either said something wrong or the other side heard something wrong. And there are times where neither side will be able to understand which one it is. And it can be something as simple as my wife said, make a right. And I heard her say, make a left. And whether she said, make a right or make a left, neither one of us now really know. Now she's going to insist she said it correctly. And I'm going to insist that I heard it correctly. But nothing good is going to come out of these moments where both sides are absolutely certain. You didn't record it. Neither person is being jarred in their memory to go like, oh, you're right. I did say the wrong. Like there are so many instances in our world where somebody uses a set of words and their intention is A and the other person hears that set of words, but they understand it is B. And so in these instances where both sides are adamant that the misunderstanding is on the other person, the best you can do is to take the tie. And it really is giving grace to both sides. All you have to do is say, look, I don't know where the misunderstanding is, but there is one. Let's just take the tie. Often one side is either saying it incorrectly or hearing it incorrectly. And it is often fruitless to debate which it was memory, person certainty, the shame that both sides feel to have to admit that they might be wrong. Um, better to just make room that such happened and that it is, in fact, impossible to know. And uh, Glenn Oslin from Infants on Thrones taught me this. It comes from Michael Singer's uh, book, The Untethered Soul. But to relax and release. So when you have this tension and you're like, ah, I know that I was misunderstood here. I know that I'm in the right. Um, but if you can convince the other person, like, let's just take the tie. And the other person goes, yep, let's do that. And you get to just let it go relax and release it. Just move on from it because you're not going, it's, it's just a, it's an unwinnable battle when both people are sure the misunderstanding is on the other person's side. Uh, especially in these instances where it really doesn't matter. She said, go right. 
I heard go left. I made a wrong turn. We're five minutes late. So what? At the end of the day, it just doesn't really affect life that much. Um, anyway. Yeah, this one, I feel like I have shifted because I used to think like 10 years ago, 15, 20 years ago, even I used to think if we had all the data on the table, so we were both looking at the same data points, like I had this fundamental belief, which is why I debated so much. And I got in so much trouble. Um, If we had all the data, and we agreed, this seems to be the data that we're working with. And we look at it, then we could both come to the same rational conclusion. And I was right. all, I was operating under this idea. And of course, right? you're already at the rational conclusion. You're just trying to- Oh, of course. Of course. Yeah. I'm 18. I know everything, right? I. <laughs> it's obvious what the answer is, right? You're, you're just not seeing what I'm seeing. And so, uh, you know, we laugh. It's laughable now because it's like once you're an adult, you realize that even if you are looking- at the exact same picture. I mean, we just know so much about the human brain that we're not seeing ultimate reality. We're not seeing unbiased um, anything, right? Our brains are creating reality rather than just viewing it. So, you know, so now I definitely know that, hey, we could have all the same information. That does not mean that we're going to come to the same conclusion. And so I am better now at, um, and again, core values, people having different core values, people having different experiences, different biases, different triggers. I'm able to say that even if we could get the same data on the table, we're going to, we're going to have different opinions. And I, I know that now, you know, 20 years ago, I definitely didn't believe that. I believed that we could come to the same conclusion if we were operating under the same information. Um, And so to me now, I'm much more willing to agree to disagree because if you take someone who's full in on, let's say, anti-vax QAnon from fundamentalist Christianity, like that's where they are, um, in order for them to understand maybe something from my point of view, I know that to do that would be like a 20-year process of deconstructing some of that. And then I'm not going to do that in this conversation at this party. And so my test now for myself is, was I authentic to myself? Like, did I tell the truth when I had the option to, which is kind and considerate to myself? Was I kind to that person and truthful to that person and good listener and looking for their core values and all of that? And um, if I did that, then I can take that as a win. Like I, I said what I thought was the truth and I valued their truth and I tried to understand their perspective and we're definitely not going to see the same perspective. If, if we were to see the same perspective, both of our, you know, biases and experiences would have to really drastically change in order for us to like totally agree on something. And so if I did that, then I can just feel like, Oh, that was a good, that was a good agree to disagree. Like we, we were both heard, both of our values were were there. Uh, I didn't tiptoe or kind of do any lying or anything like that. And we saw each other and saw that we're different and we moved on. So I am better at trying to do that now, but it's definitely that experience of realizing that we're not seeing the same world that allows us to do that move of agree to disagree because we're just not going to ever see the world the same. We're just not. Our brains are creating it. So, you know, we, we know so much about even when someone's in the same play, they're having a completely different experience. So 
That one, I, yeah, I feel like I'm learning. You and I are in this world. I, I've been in this world for a decade and you've, you've been there, I think about the same amount of time. And uh, in this world where on one side of what we would call a high demand fundamentalist religion, where we see problems and really want to clearly articulate those so that people have information to make wiser choices in their life. And then the other side of the aisle, which are folks who believe adamantly that their religious system is not only better than you give it credit for, but it's the one and only true living system on the earth, right? And so for 10 years, I've been in these conversations where, like you just said, I thought I was articulate enough and I had enough data on my side that I could convince anybody if they would just listen that I'm right and they're wrong. And over the course of a decade, I've learned that that just like you, I've learned for the most part, I still get stuck in this, these moments where I think I just, we, on, on a different podcast, we interviewed a young man uh, who was adamant that he was in, that he was in the right thing and that we were the ones wrong. And I was trying to explain how rational thinking works, how critical thinking works and how, how irrational some things are about this particular religious system. And once again, I learned that that, never works. So here's what I do now. If I'm in an important conversation and there are observers and there is me in the in my interlocutor, right? The other person that I'm disagreeing with. I, I in my head, I stop worrying about trying to convince them that they're wrong. Instead, I try to present the data as logically and as uh plainly as possible, not trying to convince them, but to allow everyone who's observing to be able to see a rational argument from my point of view, and hence hope to help everyone who's watching the disagreement happen. When you approach it that way, there's a lot less emotion in the conversation because I'm not really worried about winning them over and I'm not really bothered by the fact that they continue to disagree with me. I'm simply trying to put the facts down so that everybody, the 10, the 50, the 300 people who watch that Facebook post or that podcast or that interview, whatever it is, they can sense like, oh, Bill made a really good argument and it helped me to make a better decision about how I navigate this thing. And I'm not as worried about <clears throat> winning the other person over because like you pointed out, that almost never happens anyway. Yeah. Do you remember, this would be the first time that we met in person. So a decade ago, I don't know if you remember this conversation. Do you remember? It was the first time we kind of sat down to lunch. We were at the same table together. It was um, at Thomas McConkie's retreat and we were sitting with Wendy Montgomery and she had an opportunity. She's a, so she had a, she has a gay child and she was meeting with a top leader of, you know, a fundamentalist church. And uh, so we were sitting there and she was like, she's a dragon. She's a mama dragon, right? So she's coming in there all fire. Like I'm going into this conversation and I want them to know they're killing my kid, right? And, and you know, she's heard a lot of stories. There's a lot of fire there. And I remember it was you and me and Wendy and Thomas McConkie and Thomas McConkie was trying to talk this through with her of like, is there a way we can do this where we invite that leader? We take ego out of it. We take the defense out of it. 
where we're inviting him to really sit with your experience. How can we structure that conversation differently? And I remember sitting there thinking like, and, and, you know, we had practiced it and I don't know how it went. That's her, that's her story to tell. But I remember, I mean, this was 10 years ago where we were st- the first time we met in person, where we were talking about this issue of like, there's a lot of emotions here. I believe that this leader is saying something that directly affects the mental health of my child. How can I have a productive conversation? And it was these principles of like, how can we, and we were brainstorming, all of us, we were brainstorming, how can we go into this conversation and have it be an invitation to sit with my experience, which does change people's minds and people's perspectives and people's hearts, rather than going in like, look at what you're doing, or how can this be God's word or whatever, you know, kind of fiery statement that's just going to bring up someone's ego and defense system and you're not going to get anywhere. And that was that was the first time we had lunch together was really talking about this. And we're still talking about it of just how do we have these really, really difficult conversations where our egos get in the way of having productivity, but yet our feelings, like her feelings are so valid, Right. Um, and it's tricky. It's tricky for all of us. Yeah. And while I understood where she was coming from, I struggle to understand where the other side is coming from. Like, why can't you sit with the harm that your rhetoric and your positions are causing? And I think it's the same retreat, but we ended up in the backyard of the home, I think was where we had lunch. And as we're sitting back there, and I think you're right, Thomas is sitting there with us and Wendy, we were, we were poking at Thomas, like, when do you march? Like, when do you grab a sign? And when do you resort to, you know, telling the other side? And he goes, well, maybe we do that. Like, is that needed? Like, do we have to, like, it was basically like, I'm going to methodically from a place of wisdom and being grounded, I'm going to decide where I extend myself and where I don't. And I'm not just going to let my emotions cause me to uh, run into every fight demanding that the other side, you know, give me what I want. And it was a moment where I had to go like, but, but maybe we should. And, and, and then it's like, wait a minute, why is this guy seems so grounded and also believes the same positions I do, but he's not, he's not enraged about it. Right. And over time you start to sense that when someone comes to a disagreement calmly, there's something more persuasive than the person who's just enraged. And there were a lot of us that day who were just enraged about the things that are going on in that system. Yeah. And I do want to say that there is something, and he says this too, there is something called holy anger. So it's not that anger is a bad emotion, right? It's not that enlightened people don't feel anger. It was really this mindfulness of this is anger because there's an injustice And how do I want to have this conversation that will have the best effect on that injustice, right? So it's it's not cutting off the anger of like, holy people don't experience anger. It was, he had this way of like, there was a lot of anger in that room. How can we direct that anger so it has the most chance of doing some good for these kids? And like, that's where, that was like the next step for us because we were just all angry, right? And so that was the next step of um, if you want someone to... What we're really wanting is we're wanting this person to understand this experience, right? 
to sit with this experience. And if we go in just with our anger that forces them to be to to defend with their ego, we're not going to do anything productive with that anger, right? And so it wasn't cutting off the anger, it was directing the anger, which is still something that I try to practice. Like, how do I direct this sense of injustice I'm feeling to something positive, to something that addresses that injustice? And that's usually inviting people to your cause, inviting people to uh, look at things different or look at your experience and hear other people's stories rather than going around and just saying like, you should be so ashamed that you participate in patriarchy and you know, you're an asshole male for being, you know, that, what are you going to do with that? Like that person's just going to all of a sudden just say, Oh yeah. Okay. I, uh, I'm going to unpack patriarchy now. Like, no, like you're throwing a lot of shame at that person. They're going to, their ego is going to protect them from that. So anyway, we're still all working on this. We had this conversation 10 years ago when we first met and now we're still having it. Probably can still have it, huh? <laughs> we can probably still have it because it's, it's, um, it's called hard conversations for a reason. It's, it's yeah. really, it's really difficult. And as you point out, holy anger comes from system two, not system one lizard brain, right? So what he was basically saying is like, let's be wise about how we do this so that we have the most impact and don't, and do some self-care and don't waste our own emotional energy. I think I, also too, it's like, about. it's talking in a way where previous selves, um, I do this with, I try to do this with myself a lot when we're talking about religion is try, I'm sure I failed, but try to talk in a way that the previous self or like the believer self wouldn't be offended, right? because that was a part of you. And so if you say all people who believe in God are crazy and you once believed in God, that's hurting a part of you, right? And so um, it, again, yeah, it's, it's the anger comes from a sense of injustice. So what are we going to do with that rather than just like putting more shame out into the world? Yeah. Yeah. Number six, uh, look after yourself. Difficult conversations can sometimes get a bit heated as people may feel emotion or hurt, angry, confused, taking care of yourself as a priority. It's okay to take a time out or let everyone cool down. By the way, let me say this. When you take a time out, don't just say I'm leaving and, you know, walk out the front door and slam it because that's your ego trying to scare the other person that you might be going above and beyond a normal break, right? So um, if your ego isn't participating in this decision and it's your wisdom side, your wisdom side is going to go, hey, I need a breather. I need to take a half an hour just to think this through. I will return in a half an hour and check in with you and see if we can continue the conversation. Or maybe it's the next morning. Maybe it's the next day. Whatever it is, you state it clearly so the other person has a sense of safety in the break that you're taking. Often uh, in fights earlier in my marriage, uh, we would just threaten each other. We're like, like I'm out of here. You know, I'm packing up a bag and I'm that's it. I'm done, you know. And um, when we do it that way, it's really out of an, um, an ego uh, behavior to try to scare the other person into admitting they're wrong so I can still get the victory. And what we really need to do is just say, hey, I need to take a break, give a time frame, say when you'll return. And if you get to that time frame and you're still not ready, you reach back out again and you say, hey, I know I said I would talk to you now. This is me talking to you now, but I'm not ready yet. I need another two hours. I need another day. I need another week to think about it, whatever it is. But the other person needs to know what that is so that they can feel safe and, and so that there's not this 
threat over somebody's head that something is falling apart in a way that it really isn't. So there's that. Please. Yeah. So this is where you really have an opportunity to do shadow work in the sense that you're checking with yourself as, as far as like, why am I having this reaction? So why did I get heated? Um, why do I need to be right in this situation? Am I needing to be validated? And why is that? Like, what is coming up for me and why? So when I do get the opportunity to have that heated discussion and I get a break, that's when, especially if I'm surprised at how heated I'm getting, like that's the moment to do that shadow work with yourself in the sense of why am I having that reaction? And so then I'll be able to come back to the conversation and say, hey, I freaked out a little bit when you said that because I have this history of patriarchy or I have this history of being unheard or I have this history, whatever the history is. And it just, it triggered something in me and that's mine. And um, that's why I really got so heated. And so when you do that, um, that's really when not only do you come away from the conversation, hopefully having reconciled and reconnected, but you also learn more about yourself. Like, wow, when someone does this, I tend to have this reaction that's a little bit, that's my own trigger, right? It's not about them. It's my own trigger reacting. And so that's when we can do that. That time is really shadow work time. And that's when those are the times when I feel like not only did I um, reconnect in my relationship, but I also understood my patterns more so that I'm growing as a person. So when I can get to that place, that's a good place for me because um, there's a lot of growth happening in that area. But again, that's because we took a break and we kind of self-reflected and we came back to it. That doesn't happen in lizard brain at 3 a.m. in the morning, at least not no, for me. No, and you mentioned like when you do take a break, you're sitting in your bed or on your couch, whatever, you're you're just stewing about how you're gonna reapproach this in the morning. And what it's suggesting here is agree to come back later if there's more to dis- discuss. Use this time to switch off and to relax. Go for a walk, listen to a podcast, some music, meditate, talk to someone who makes you feel good. You should also be proud of yourself for starting this conversation. It takes real courage. Each time you overcome your nervousness and do it, you'll build skills and confidence. Some of the notes I made, slow down, be present, try to sense the, your ego and the part that it plays in this disagreement. Create safety for all parties to take a break or a timeout. Be aware of system one, system two, but also, as it said there, get away from it. Like, Don't spend the whole night deconstructing the argument that happened and then building an argument for eight o'clock in the morning when when you go to resume it instead, totally walk away from it because now you get a chance to go from system one back to system two, your logical side, your methodical side, your, your uh, wisdom side, and you're going to come back in the morning or an hour later or the next week, ready to re-engage a much healthier conversation. There's also not as much emotional attachment when you come back to it the next day, it feels like it's life or death in the moment of these disagreements But if you put some time in between, almost always, it has less uh, attachment. We have less attachment to the argument itself or the hurt uh, if we give some space. Uh, So there's those things. Anything else there before we go to number seven? Yeah. um, So in the middle of the night when I can, when I can do that kind of shutdown, um, 
Oh, I forgot what I was going to say, but yeah, it's, it's really good to just do that. Do that shadow work is, is really just what comes up for me. So we can move on there. I had something, but I lost it. Go ahead. If you think of it, just interrupt me. So Mm -hmm. so number seven, seek to understand before being understood. We've already talked about that, but you had one little thing you wanted to add there. Yeah. So this is really fun to do. I can't, I can only do this with very few people. I'd be able to do this with you. You and I could do this, but it's really interesting to do debates. Like if you're really, um, this, this would maybe be more appropriate. Well, there's two ways you could do this. You could do this when you're in a debate, like you're debating abortion or something. Um, but you can also do it. Sometimes therapists do this in, in marriage counseling where you have to speak to what the other person is feeling. So like you play Amanda and Amanda plays Bill and like, what is this person feeling? Because you really can only get to truly understanding each other if you can debate from either side. So if you're trying to debate abortion, for example, and then I say, okay, try to switch sides and you have nothing just like, oh, I'm a murderer and I like to murder everyone. Like that's your argument for the other side. Um, Okay, that just means that you don't understand this. And so for me, I really try to not come to a conclusion until I can debate either side from either side because when I can debate from either side, it means that I understand it. And this is something that is really like all philosophers do this. Benjamin Franklin does this all the time. There are a lot of wise people that say, in order to really get to something, you have to be able to debate it equally from either side. And you can also do this in relationships. Like, do you understand your partner enough to, to be able to play them and articulate what they're feeling? Because if you can't, it means that you're really, you haven't listened well enough right yet, right? You haven't really understood their experiences. And so I find this really helpful when I really want to get to like debating 2.0, which is... I'm not just going to debate my side, which is my bias and my perspectives. I want to see both sides well enough that I'm making the most informed decision that I can, which you can only do when you can debate both sides equally. So I remember in the Jordan Peterson, Sam Harris debates, I think it was number three, where they started the debate by switching sides. Okay, Sam be Jordan and Jordan be Sam and give that argument as best they can. And they were able to because they were really trying to listen to each other. And then they were able to say, okay, do you understand? Okay. So if you understand what I'm saying there, then like, why don't you see it this way? And they were able to go from there, but that's really when you get to like 2.0, do you really understand your partner or the issue well enough to do it from either side before you make kind of a decision on where to go? And that's been something that's really helped me to, I think, make um, better decisions and also be able to compromise well, because I can really say, uh, I understand what you're feeling and what you're saying so well that I can say it for you. Yeah. They call that steel manning another person's argument because we have the, what's called a straw man, which is where you have an incomplete understanding of another person's argument and you articulate it in a way that makes the other person's argument easy to knock down, but it really doesn't represent them fairly. And as you're pointing out in that Sam Harris, Jordan Peterson debate, both of them were making a very con, uh, concerted effort to steel man each other. And only when you steel man the other person, are you actually speaking to their perspective directly and completely in a way that both sides can go, yeah, I feel heard. I feel understood. I can understand why you think differently, but I still feel this way. And if there is going to be any resolution, it can much more easily happen when both sides feel the other person understands their perspective. 
And this is something we never see in politics ever, right? Mm. Even political mm. debates, they're just going like, what are my talking points? Like whatever the question is, whatever they say, what are my talking points that really rallies my base? It's like they're really talking to their base, right? They're not talking to each other at all. And so it'd be really like if I was in charge of the world and force people to, you know, have political debates, I would essentially force them to, can you steel man them? Or do you just think that they're all terrible people because they're on the other side of the aisle. We don't get that at all with politics and we can see how diverse, you know, we are with politics. Yeah. I, I want to kind of move towards the end here. I want to share a few things and I know you've got a couple other things to share, so I'll try to be quick. Um, the last thing I wrote here was state your problem and feelings. We hit on this earlier, but I want the audience to notice this. Your feelings Feelings to a human being or whatever we were before we were human. If we go back far enough, we recognize that humans existed, or I'm sorry, that feelings existed before stories. Sit with that for a moment, right? Like what I feel inside came first. My ability to apply a narrative to it came second. So feelings are much older than stories. Feelings cause less defensiveness usually than stories. Um, when we tell a story about why we felt something, I just want everyone to recognize that that is a modern thing. When you were something other than human, the world bumped into you and you felt something. And, and you can go to like plants. I've said this before in the podcast. If a you're in a forest and there's a baby tree and it's having the light blocked by an older tree, that baby tree might start to wilt and die. It's feeling something. It sure as hell doesn't have a story to apply to it. We humans feel things. That's normal. It's natural. It's only in the last, whatever, 200,000 years that we have developed language and thought processes that allow us to think a story about our feelings, and then apply a narrative to it. When you recognize that feelings are the base level, and some feelings are more base than others. So for instance, if I say I feel jealousy, the reality is what I really feel is, is fear, right? Jealousy is a extension of fear. And so when I go back to my partner and I say, hey, I'm feeling scared. I'm feeling fearful. Our partner, if the other person we're talking to cares about us in any degree, they're going to have a much easier time speaking to our feelings rather than, I didn't like it when you looked at that other person as if you wanted them, right? Mm. And, and so when you say something like that, defensiveness sets in. You can feel it as I say that. When you say, hey, I really felt a lot of fear this morning at breakfast. The other person is going to go, oh, whoa, I don't want you to feel that. Let's talk about that. You create a much more fertile ground for a conversation where both people hear and understand each other. So there's that. Let me, um, let me jump in there please. before you go to the next thing. I, it was such a freeing moment when I had enough mindfulness in me to notice that in those, you know, conversations with my husband where things have got, where things would get heated my brain would start to spiral with the story. So the story was, he doesn't love me. We're getting divorced. My family's going to fall apart, da, 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 da. And every time it happened, my brain would spiral into the story. And it took a while 
And it takes mindfulness to step out and say, oh, every time I'm feeling this heated or I'm feeling this way, my brain comes up with this long story about, you know, all these tragic, tragic things. And so I remember the first time, this was maybe five years ago, where I was laying my bed in my bed and my brain was doing the story of how like this isn't going to work and da, 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 da. Um, and sitting there and realizing, oh, this is a pattern. My brain is telling this story because that's what it does when it feels this way. Mm -hmm. And then I started to learn all kinds of stories and patterns. So when I get intrusive thoughts as a mother, which which happens with a lot of mothers with young children, where you start Mm -hmm. to think things really scary um, about your children, instead of telling that story of um, whatever that intrusive thought is, and I'm a bad mom, oh, I feel this way. my, My brain does this story because I'm feeling burned out or I'm feeling touched out, or I'm feeling like I haven't gotten enough me time. And as soon as I could get past the story to what am I feeling, then I could actually deal with it. So when I get an intrusive thought now, I don't think I'm a bad mom. I don't give it any attention. I don't freak out over it. I know that that story happens when my brain is feeling really sleep deprived and really burnt out as a mom. And I will tell my husband and we'll make adjustments and then I'll get some me time and it goes away. And so it's really like you're saying, so much freedom came to make decisions and make my life better when um, I was able to notice the story and get down to the feeling that was causing the story because the story, you're right, the story comes later and noticing the stories that your brain does um, and the feelings at the root of it was just a huge way of, of getting a lot of freedom in my life. Yeah. Another way to think about it, I've got uh, two baby grandchildren right now, a girl and a boy. And as I watch them, these, these life forms came into this world, not knowing anything. They don't have, uh, they don't know what this, they don't know what this world is. They don't even know what they are, right? They don't even know that they're a human. They don't have any stories to apply. They don't they even be, they've just begun to see patterns and to m- try to make order of that, right? And they're feeling things all the time. Um, when, uh, when you end up in a interaction with another human being where something bumped into you, and you got triggered, your brain tells you that this moment is the thing. Here's what went wrong. Here's why I'm hurt. But the reality is that you felt something because of everything behind you, all the events that have happened to you that were similar to this one. Um, Thomas McConkie, go back to him. He, he taught me this idea that when you come to a new moment, it is a new moment. It's not like any other moment, but your brain tells you that whatever feeling, insecurity, jealousy, anger, sadness, whatever it is, you're making uh, sense of this moment based on the thousand moments behind you that were similar. And his suggestion was pretend like whatever that is inside is just a bowl full of water and just dump it out. And now see this experience, this moment as fresh and new and don't, and again, it's near impossible for us humans to do, but to, to handle this moment as if it's not defined by the moments that came before. I say that because you come to a moment with such anxiety, such apprehension, such fear or nervousness about it being handled right. 
and you are uh, in your head making lots of judgments about the other person and what they did to you. When in reality, it's really what happened before this moment that gave your body and mind the indication that the same sort of thing was happening right here. And if you can sort of be aware of that and calm it down as much as possible, you're going to engage this present moment differently than just being in lizard brain and thinking it's just like every other time where, where people do this thing to me. Um, you, you open up a chance for the dialogue to go differently. Um, so anyway, there's that. I do think you can also get in a trap and I made fun of the extreme right. So I'll make fun of the extreme left here to be balanced. But there are times when you get into that trap of I'm feeling this way and it's, everybody else it's everybody else's fault right instead of kind of doing that shadow work and then you try to in order to make that better you start trying to manipulate the world so that you never get your feelings hurt and that is kind of the worst of what we get from the extreme left is people thinking instead of like let's say you've had trauma and you have triggers and all of those things thinking that you can then walk out into the world and manipulate every aspect of the world so that you never get your feelings hurt you're missing the growth that comes from working with those triggers working with those resentments working with some of that um and being able to have the freedom to set your own boundaries so that you're not constantly trying to force the world to fit whatever is going to be best for your feelings which is kind of a naive way that sometimes the extreme left expects the world to be and i think that that's missing that piece of development of saying um I'm, I'm a part of this and I'm responsible for my own feelings and I'm responsible for my own responses and I can set boundaries, but I'm not, I can't force other people to not give me this feeling because then you're trying to manipulate the world instead of changing yourself so that you can walk anywhere and be okay. Mm. Uh, one of the websites said it this way, step one, inquiry, seek to understand. Step two, acknowledgement, validation for the reasonability of another's humanity. Step three, advocacy, make it safe that others' humanity be allowed a seat at the table. Step four, problem solving, hold unhealthy behavior accountable and work towards clarity and productivity. And then this quote, I did an episode way back when we started the Almost Awakened podcast, um, and this was on negotiating uh, sexuality. And I thought, I think this quote is gorgeous, and I think it applies to every time we are in um, in space with another human being where we are trying to work out our own needs being met. And here it is within ethical and legal constraints. We all have the right to push for what we want from our partner or anybody else that we're in a negotiation about some sort of disagreement um, and to suffer the consequences for pushing too hard. Similarly, we also have a right to deny our partner's request and to suffer the consequences for shutting them down. But we need to remember that nothing in a relationship happens in a vacuum. It is influenced by what came before as well as what else is going on in the relationship. So generosity can be rewarded and bad behavior can be punished in more ways than one. Therefore, we have to keep the bigger picture in mind. What price am I willing to pay for this? If it's worth it, then it's worth it. But since life and relationships involve compromise and sacrifice, we have to consider the potential ripple effects. And that quote reminds me that these, these uh, altercations that we have with other human beings, 
they're almost never a win-win or a lose-lose and they're messy and they're complex and we ought to really be um, careful recognizing with all the ability we have in that moment to sense what is at stake. And even in instances where we deeply believe we're right, there is a cost if we push too hard. And people ought to recognize what those stakes are. And sometimes it's just better to let this one go. We always say about parents with children, pick your battles. Hmm. And I think we ought to say it about everyone, adults with other adults, pick your battles. Sometimes there's too much at stake to get the victory that you want. And it's better just to let it go and move on. Any thoughts there? Yeah, I had one experience where I was in the wrong but I was glad that someone called me out for it because it meant that we could keep our relationship. So she had sent me a picture of her son who was passing the sacrament, which in that religion happened when you're 12. And she sent it to me. And her kind of reason for sending it to me is was like, oh, look how cute my son is. And it was a Sunday morning and I was in a mood and... I was, I was triggered about everything, right? So I, I'm acting from a triggered place. And I said something to the effect of, um, I wish that your daughters could do that too, you know, which was kind of just my snide way of saying like, well, this is bullshit. I don't like this at all because I'm feeling triggered and look at all this priesthood and all this patriarchy. And she was just trying to send me a cute picture, right? Totally inappropriate of me to like unleash all of my shit into that. And so I loved that what she did was she texted me later. It wasn't in the moment. She texted me later on in the day and just said, because this relationship means so much to me, you know, if it was someone that I didn't care about, I would have just let it go. But because I care so much about this relationship, I want to tell me how it made me feel when you said that. And then we were able to you know, she explained how it made her feel. And I was able to step back and realize that was totally inappropriate. And I had to apologize. And I kind of shared why I was feeling that way. And um, so that she would understand that I wasn't trying to do anything. I was just acting from a triggered place. And we were able to, you know, we didn't come to an agreement on whether or not priesthood should be for boys and girls, you know, that, that wasn't the place, but it was because the relationship meant something for her. She called me out on something that was hurtful. And I came away from that feeling not called out. Uh, I came away feeling, wow, she cares so much about our relationship that she was willing to like, I know this person doesn't like conflict. She was willing to push back at me. And I came, we came away closer than ever because she showed me that, um, Hey, you mean more to me than just being able to let this go. So yeah, if it would have been someone that she didn't care about, just let it go. Just let it go. It's, it's not worth the fight, pick your battles, all of that things. But there are times when, you know, the relationship does really mean something where you do need to have that conversation. And when you do it right, and she really did it right with me, you come away with more intimacy instead of more conflict. And um, it's just one of those times where I was really called out and I was really glad that she did. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I made a note here. Soon as any tension arises, your thinking steps away from system two and it settles in system one, lizard brain or fight or flight. 
This will almost always lead to worse outcomes. So the question is, how do you start off a conversation? And here were some of the suggestions. I have Here's the first one. I have something I'd like to discuss with you that I think will help us work together more effectively. Here's another. I'd like to talk about, and you fill in the blank with you, but I've but first, I'd like to get to know your point of view. Well, isn't that beautiful? Like, hey, I have something I want to discuss, but I really would like to know your point of view first. We almost never do that. Um, another one, I need your help with what just happened. Do you have a few minutes to talk? The, the sense of asking permission if now is a good time. Often we throw our conflicts onto somebody because we've been thinking about it, but they don't have any time to get grounded and ready for that conversation. So I thought it was that's a really good one. Um, another one, I need your help with something. Can we talk about it soon? If the person says, sure, let me get back to you, follow up with them because you've indicated an important conversation. Now you're giving them the chance to dictate when and where that occurs. Um, that's how, again, consent works in day-to-day conversation interaction with each other. Uh, if you, here's another one. I think we have different perceptions about fill in the blank. I'd like to hear your thinking on this. Another one, I'd like to talk about, again, fill in the blank. I think we may have different ideas about how to, and again, fill in the blank. Last one, I'd like to see if we might reach a better understanding about, uh, name the topic, and then I really want to hear your feelings about this and share my perspective as well. So there's these ideas of asking permission for an important conversation. There's the idea of giving people the chance to kind of determine when so they can physically and mentally, emotionally prepare for it. There's the, there's things in these questions about letting them share their perspective first, which I think is really helpful when you come to somebody with a problem, giving them the chance to talk about it first. There's just some sort of consent and equality going on there. Those seem really, um, really good ways to start off important conversations. Uh, any thoughts from you? Yeah, I love that. All of those are really invitations. So like if someone says, I, I'm thinking about something and I want to hear your point of view, like my ego is so excited to engage in that conversation because I feel like, oh, you want to hear me? Like you want to talk to me? You want to listen to me? Um, so there, those are really invitational ways of doing it, right? Which is which is really overall, that's what we're talking about. How do we set our, our own egos? How do I invite you to, to meet with me in this space so that we can have a fruitful discussion, right? And so those are all just invitations. So my, my last thing before we wrap up here is what are the three hardest kinds of conversations? So you know that you're coming into a hard conversation. So the three hardest conversations are one, what happened conversations, so again, this is, did you say left or right when you're driving with your wife? It's uh, who's, you know, if you're going into it with whose story is right and whose story is wrong, it's going to be a hard conversation. It just is. And so you have to switch it to, I wonder why we see things differently. Why do you think that way? Like, what are you relying on? Or instead of like, this is your fault or this is what happened, saying, I think we've both contributed to this. Here's my contribution. You know, here's the stuff that that I need to take responsibility for. Let's figure out how we can fix this. So it's again, going into it with that invitation. The second hard conversation is feelings conversations. So anytime where intense feelings comes up and 
the old assumption is uh, feelings are irrelevant and wouldn't be helpful to share, or my feelings are your fault and you need to hear about it. And instead going to this new assumption of feelings are complex. I may have to dig a bit into dig a bit to understand my own feelings. You may have to dig to understand your, your own feelings. And then can we address these feelings, both mine and yours without judgment? So getting to, instead of the story on top of it, getting to what are you feeling? when I'm texting another female? What are you feeling, you know, and, and really getting to addressing the feelings instead of the story of why you made me feel that way. And then the third one is identity conversation. So we're talking about something that attacks my self-image. So these ones are, are super tricky too. I think I have the, I think I have the wrong slide for that. But um, anytime where my identity is wrapped into what we're talking about, my ego is going to have to protect that because if I'm wrong, then I have to do this whole ego identity change. And that's a lot of work, right? That's a lot of work. People only do that when they feel like they need to, or they have to, or they have time to, or they're able to. Um, getting someone to change their identity in a conversation is just not something that happens. Like there's just too much at stake. And so the reason why and I get this all the time with clients of like, I feel like I've got my own spirituality going, but I have no idea how to structure conversations with my parents or with my spouse or with my kids. And one of the reasons why religion and politics will always be hard to talk about is they have all three. There's something about what happened and what are you feeling and your identity is wrapped up into it. So if you're talking about if Jesus was a real person, you're talking about what happened and there's going to be feelings involved based on what happened and your identity, how you see the world, your entire self image is wrapped up into that question. So this is why two people can't just have this kind of light conversation, usually like over dinner and just like, yeah, what do you think about Jesus? Oh, no, this and I mean, if, if people have feelings and they have an idea of what happened and they have their identity into it, that is not going to be an easy conversation. That's going to be a They're hard conversation because it's going to, yeah. it's going to be all three. And so that's why you have to be really mindful going into conversations where you're talking about spirituality and faith changes and, you know, the stuff that we talk about on this podcast with other people, um, because there's going to be a difference in how you see things, what happened, because there's always a story with religion of what happened. Um, there's going to be feelings involved, uh, feelings of, you know, testimony building experiences and things like that. And then people's identities are going to be really wrapped into what they're talking about. And so that's why the best we can do is check our own ego, our lizard brain, do that shadow work and invite people to meet with us in that space so that we can really understand each other. Because at the end of the day, like you say, people come to their conclusions, honestly, and even if you're trying to change that person's mind, even if that was your goal, which it may maybe shouldn't be, but even if that was your goal, the best way to do that is to meet human to human rather than ego versus ego. Yeah. And uh, my closing thoughts and love to hear anything else you've got. My closing thoughts is that give yourself some grace. You're going to continue to get it wrong all the time. Um, in my life, Growth to me is measured by, oh, I get it right a little more often than I did six months ago. Um, and once in a while, I have these light bulb moments where I 
recognize new language for something and new ideas for something that I'd never said or thought before. And you should be uh, proud of yourself when you have those moments while recognizing that you're going to continue to mess up. You're going to continue to make mistakes. You're going to continue to have a fight every now and then that runs to two or three in the morning. Um, There's no escaping that. And you ought to give yourself a ton of grace knowing that that's what's going to happen and that success and progress and growth isn't measured by being perfect at this. It's measured by these small incremental improvements that happen over weeks or months or even years. Yeah. So we can hold each other accountable. That's all they have to say. We're, we're going to hold each other accountable. So Bill, next time you walk away from a conversation mid lizard brain and say, you know what? I think I'm going to take a breath here. Can we come back to this in the morning? I'm going to hold you accountable and you can hold me accountable for that's the one that I struggle with the most. So I'm going to, I'm almost excited now for the next time that I have that opportunity. So I have something to practice. I'm still working, even though I talk with, talk with people about religion and politics all the time. Um, and some of these things I feel like I'm doing and some of these things I'm still improving. Um, yeah, this is, this is a step-by-step and there's no shame in being imperfect at this. Cause this is just, it's really hard. This is the hard yeah. stuff. These are the hard conversations that we have as humans and you know, they're not easy. Even when you agree to disagree, it's still not easy. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so I'll hold you accountable and you can hold me accountable at getting better at uh, walking away and not being such annoying pursuers as we both are. Yeah. And, uh, and I'll say like, I think we did a great job today. This was a comprehensive to some degree conversation on how to handle difficult conversations, but it is not everything. And folks, if, if these are things that kind of you, you sense during this conversation that these are things you struggle with, my two cents is continue to read, listen, and think about um, these kinds of things. I'm sure there's other great advice out there. Um, it really is a lifelong journey to learn how to be a better human being, to be your best authentic self. And uh, this was just one piece of that puzzle. And it's a spiritual path. Sometimes we take for granted that, especially social people will think, you know, I'm not a very spiritual person. I just like to hang out with my friends. And it's like, we talked about a lot of really deep work that happens throughout this whole two hours, right? This is work. Mm. This is checking yourself and your biases and um, holy listening and and listening as kind of a meditation and shadow work. We talked about all of that and it's just hanging out with your friends. And so I think sometimes we don't see this as a spiritual practice, but getting better at spending time with your with your family, which is always hard because you guys have history and there's all kinds of triggers. And then um, developing friendships where you can call each other out and and do that so that you can preserve friendships. It's absolutely a spiritual path. It's absolutely a path to enlightenment and all the things. And um, so we don't need to see it as just spending time with friends. This is spiritual work too. Love it. Anything else from you? Otherwise, great nope, show. I thought that's again, it for and me. Great conversation. Okay. Yep. Everybody have fun. Don't forget uh, if you can help us out, donate at almostawaken.org and click the donate button. Send us a few bucks. If you like this content, uh, it looks like Kelly does. And uh, these are the kinds of comments we've been getting a lot lately. So much appreciated to all of you who tune in. I hope this was beneficial. Britt, as always, thank you very much. Thanks, Bill. Bye. This has been another Almost Awakened episode. Check us out at almostawakened.org, where you can check out past episodes, make a donation to keep this podcast running, 
email us a question or comment, or find out more about the resources shared in today's episode. For coaching opportunities or extra support, visit nonsensespirituality.com to meet with certified spiritual director, Brittany Hartman.